Ephesians chapter 5, we continue our study tonight, um, tomorrow at 9.30 and at uh, 6.30 in the evening is the woman's Bible study uh, through the book of James. Did I get the times right? 9 o'clock. What did I say, 9.30? 9 a.m. and 6.30 in the evening is the woman's Bible study. And the men on Saturday, is that still happening early, early, early at the beach? All right. Bonfire at the beach, just like Jesus and his men. Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather. We said all of the things that we've been planning, thinking, that have occupied our minds and hearts and burdened our lives, and we lay them before you who are so faithful, who know us so well, who love us so deeply. We place them in your hands, and just now, our hearts are open along with your word to see what you'd have for us individually. You're committed, Lord, to our growth, to our nurture, to our understanding of truth, that we might be well-balanced, mature believers. To that end, Father, we pray, and we pray that so that your name would be great in all the earth, through our lives, and especially in view of tonight's study, in our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a man was driving his car out in the woods, and he drove it into a ditch, and he got it stuck. And as he got out and was trying to figure out what to do, a local farmer saw his dilemma and came by with his faithful horse, Buddy, to pull out the car. And so Buddy was there by the roadside, and the man, the farmer, took the rope and hitched it around the bumper and around Nellie's harness, uh, excuse me, around Buddy's harness, and, uh, and the farmer said, pull, Nellie, pull. And the horse didn't do anything. The farmer said, pull, Buddy, pull. No movement. Again, the farmer said, pull, Sparky, pull. No movement. Then the farmer, in a very simple, calm, nonchalant voice, stroking the horse's back, said, pull it out, buddy. And buddy, with its strong muscles, pulled the car out and took it safely to the road. And the uh, driver was perplexed, and he said, question, why did you address your horse three times by the wrong name? And the farmer said, well, you see, Buddy's blind. And if he thought he had to do all the work himself, he wouldn't do anything at all. <laughs> There's a lesson in that. I'm not sure what it is, but I think the lesson is in all of life and in all of our relationships, things go better when there's teamwork because you can't relate alone. There's enough one-anothers in the Bible that require one-another to pull it off. You can't pull it off. You can't pull out of problems alone. So relationships work better as we work together toward a common goal. Now, we've already discovered that Paul in chapter 5 spoke about being filled with the Spirit and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We do that to one another. 
Verse 21 has another one another that is important as we get into our study tonight. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. I'm going to stop there before we get into the several verses that follow it because the next four paragraphs are spinoffs of that principle. In fact, I suggest that the four following paragraphs dealing with wives, husbands, children and parents, and workers or slaves, masters, whatever context you want to put it in, all have their derivation from this principle, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The word submit. Them's fighting words these days in some circles. The word submit is a combination of two Greek words. The Greek word is hupatasso, and it comes from two words put together, hupa, which means under, and tasso, which means to rank or arrange, or to place oneself next to, and in this case, to place oneself under. It has its uh, common usage among the ancient military, where... Uh, those who would be marching under or ranking under a superior officer took orders, so to maintain rank, maintain order. So the idea is to arrange one's life underneath another life. Now, I want you to notice something. It is tied to verse 18 being filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, And notice the results, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So then the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, because in the original these are all words that hang off that principle of being filled. One of the results of being filled with the Spirit isn't being arrogant and brash in the name of Christ, but humble and sweet. So be careful if somebody says, the Holy Spirit has come upon me and now I'm mad at everybody in Jesus' name. And spewing out judgments to the church in the name of the Lord, here is the result of being filled with the Spirit. Now it says, submitting to one another. I know some homes where husbands know the next verse by heart. (laughs) They neglect this verse. They know the next one. In fact, they may not know any of the Bible at all, even John 3.16, but they know wives submit to your husbands. So that's why I'm just spending a little bit of time on verse 21 because verse 22 is based upon verse 21. Verse 21 is a transitional verse. I don't believe, in that is some Bibles have it, that there should be a break as there is in some study Bibles. You have a break after verse 21 and then you'll have a heading, uh, something like... uh, wives relating to their husbands, and then another break where it speaks about husbands relating to their wives. I believe that contextually, linguistically, and practically, verse 21 is ever a part of verse 22 as anything. They cannot be separated at all. 
In other words, the principle is stated, and then examples, four of them, are given. Something else. In verse 22, see where it says, wives, submit to your husband? The word submit is not there in the original. And just in case you say, I don't know if you know that, I've got the original right here, the Greek, and I was going through it this afternoon. And it simply says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That's the original. It's implied, though not written. And because it is implied, translators have come along and written, wives submit to your husband. But in the original, it's not there. As if to say, here's the principle. Submit to one another, wives to your husbands, husbands to your wives by loving them as Christ loved the church. Children to your parents by obeying them, parents to your children by not exasperating them, uh, servants to your masters, etc. All of these are forms of submission. You say, especially some of you men, now wait a minute, Skip. This is the first time I've heard that. You're telling me that the Bible says that husbands are to submit to their wives? Well, think about it. Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There is no greater act of submission than laying your life down for a person. There is no greater act of submission than Christ's cross. That's the ultimate act of submitting to the Father in obedience going to the cross. So talk about a form of submission. Now, that doesn't mean that the husband stops being the leader It means that he gets under Christ. He's obeying Christ by helping his wife, loving her as Christ loved the church. I want you to see this principle in action in another place. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul begins, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that poses a problem to some of us who are Trinitarians and believe that Jesus Christ is God, and yet there's a differentiation between Christ And his father. Now, I guess the question would be, does this mean that God the father is superior to Jesus Christ? No, we know they're one. Jesus said, I and my father are one. How is the father then the head of Christ? Not in essence, not in nature. Because Paul says in Philippians concerning Christ, who being in very essence, God or in the nature of God. The issue here is not superiority, it's functionality. There has to be order and submission in every kind of relationship. It's needed in the Godhead, it's needed in government, it's needed in marriage, it's needed in office work, it's needed in the church. It's the principle of submission, and this is what makes relationships flow smoothly. So... With that in mind, let's read verse 21 and then 22 and onward together. Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, 
as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in a few things. Oh, oh I, I misread that. In, in everything. Okay, we're having a little fun, aren't we? Submission. Submission does not mean slavery. Submission does not mean tyranny. It does not mean like Ralph Cramden, I'm the king of the castle, Alice. It's not me, Tarzan, you, Jane. We're not talking about that here. It doesn't imply the superiority of the male. It implies functionality of marriage. Remember the principle we just read in 1 Corinthians. The head of man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. It doesn't mean that a man is superior. Every now and then I'll hear a husband talk bad about his wife like she's not got it all together. She's so dumb. Really? You think so? Interesting in the fact that she said yes when you said, will you marry me? So just remember that, guys. I heard about a conversation that uh, Adam was having with God, and he was so impressed with his wife, Eve, and he said, God, she's so beautiful. Why did you make her so soft and so beautiful? God said, so that you'd love her, my child. And then he scratched his head and he goes, God, I have one other question. Why did you make her so foolish so that she would love you, my child? Now, it says that wives are to submit to their own husbands, and there's a qualification phrase, as to the Lord. Now, there is the goal for the role. If the role is to submit, there's a goal for the role. The goal for the role is you're doing it as unto the Lord. I'm going to do this to please and glorify God. How about this one? It's going to be an act of worship. It's going to be an act of worship. I'm going to do it as to the Lord. It'll be my worship to the Lord. What if Jesus asked you to prepare a meal, women? You'd make it the best meal you could. What if Jesus said, hey, I'd like to come over and hang out at your house? You know, he did that with Zacchaeus in the New Testament. He was the guy in Jericho who was up in that sycamore tree, and Jesus stopped while he was in that crowd, and he said, Zacchaeus, come on down, buddy boy. I'm paraphrasing a bit. We're going to have lunch at your house today. What a great honor to have Jesus Christ at your house eating your food, so that every dish you clean, every nose you wipe, every meal you prepare, every word you speak, I'm going to do this as unto the Lord. You say, well, that's good in theory, Skip, but you don't know my husband. Perhaps I don't. Perhaps I do. But the point is that even though they don't inspire your respect, and they may, may be mean and ungrateful. Here it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And it says to do it in everything. Now, I want you to turn to another portion of Scripture. Turn to what Peter has to say in First Peter chapter 3. You know, both Paul and Peter have a lot to say about marriage. In fact, it would be great to have a series and call it Peter, Paul, and Marriage. But uh, that's for another time. Verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. That could be an unbeliever. That could be a disobedient believer. That they, get this, 
without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear or reverence or respect. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. If they don't obey the word, you without a word can win them. So there again, be submissive to your own husbands. So it's by example. It's not by nagging. It's not by criticizing. It's not by pushing and prodding and putting tracks in his sandwich so that when he bites down on it, what is that thing? Oh, it's a gospel track. It's my wife trying to win me again. Now, there is a limit. I'll grant you that. You're to do it as to the Lord. You're to submit to your husbands in the Lord. That is this overarching principle. You'll see with every one of these relationships, every one of them has the qualification that it's in the Lord. And if your husband asks you to do something that is not in the Lord, that is flatly disobedient to the commands of Scripture, you love Jesus more and you obey him above all else. Those are the limitations and qualifications. But now go back to Ephesians, where we get now to the husbands. It's their turn. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, you're going to notice something. Twice husbands are told to do that. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Why does he repeat it twice to men? Now, I don't know that I can answer that. I don't know that I will, but I do find it interesting. It could be that men forget this most often. He says that once to women, submit to your husbands. Twice to men, love your wives. Hey, did you know the term husband comes from an ancient term to cultivate or to till the ground? Remember back in John 15, if you remember it in the King James Version, where Jesus said, I am the vine and my father is the husbandman or gardener, tiller of the ground, cultivator of the relationship. That's what a husband is. A husband is put there to cultivate the wife and then later on to nurture and cultivate the child. And that's quite a job. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, it's harder to lead a family than it is to rule a nation. But boy, do we need leaders in homes. You know, I hear all the time, we need more Christian leaders in politics. Yeah, I know. But you know what? We need them a lot worse in homes than anywhere else. If you could just get Christian leaders as Christian husbands and fathers, you'd have a different nation. It'd be great to have them in politics, too, but I'd far rather see just good, godly Christian men leading homes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, you know what the definition of love here is in this verse. You can guess. You know by now. What is it? Agape. Agapao. It's the kind of love, you remember, that of all the different kinds of loves in the Greek language is the most far-reaching, most self-sacrificing, and the strongest. So husbands love, love. Husband is to be head, but in a sense, heart of the home. Husbands love. Not husbands order your wives, husbands rule over your wives, but husbands 
Love your wives. Here's my point. Here's the point, I think, of the text. Authority needs to be balanced with affection. If it's all authority and no affection, you'll have a tyrant. If it's all affection and no authority, you'll have a sappy sentimentalist. So you need authority, but you need it with affection. Husbands, agapao, love like Christ, love the church. Now, Christ is my model as a husband. And I'll confess to you, I don't, I don't meet up to the qualifications of Christ. But that is my model. So how does Christ love the church? Well, first of all, uh, it's sacrificial love. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And here it is, gave himself for her. In other words, Jesus loved the church enough. He loved people enough to leave heaven, come to earth, live here among earthlings, being obedient to his father, being submissive to his father's will. Jesus loved people enough to be uh, ridiculed, to be spat upon, to be uh, mocked. Some of you are saying, yeah, it sounds like a normal day at my house. I don't think to quite the same degree. Jesus loved people enough to die for them. And I've had husbands say, well, I love my wife that much. I'd take a bullet for her. Well, that's great. That's, that's admirable. Yeah, it's noteworthy. You take a bullet for her? I sure would. Well, okay, if you take a bullet for her, then it makes sense that you would even perform some of those lesser sacrifices short of actually taking a bullet for her. I mean, if you're willing to die for her, you're willing to live for her? Well, now you're getting a little too close to home there, buddy. Ultimate form of submission is Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ask yourselves, men, when is the last time you sacrificed for your wife? You don't have to answer it. I'm not going to call in yet. No tests afterwards. That's just between you and her and the Lord. Next, it's sanctifying love, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The commitment of Jesus Christ to his church did not end with sacrificial love. It continues with sanctifying love. The commitment that Jesus Christ has for the church didn't end in giving his life once for all for the sins of humanity. But Jesus Christ is committed to our growth, isn't he? Our maturity, our nurturing. The Bible gives it that term, sanctification. It's a common Pauline expression. It means that Jesus wants us to be holier and holier and more and more like him. And he's committed to that process in a number of ways. He prays for us. He gives us his spirit. He empowers us through the word. But the point is, the love doesn't stop with a, a one-time demonstration. It's a lifestyle of love. And so husbands should be committed to taking their wives away from the defilement of the world and making sure that they're washed in God's word and nurtured by his word and mature, set apart, separate. And then look in verse 28 in the following verses. It's not only sacrificial love. It's not only sanctifying love. It's secure love. 
making her feel secure. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. A man's wife is an extension of the man. So that he is to care and nurture and nourish to the point where she feels that kind of security. He loves me like himself. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Not saying, well, you got to first love yourself, and then once you love yourself, you can love other people. The point is, you already do love yourself. So now love people like you love yourself. You care for yourself. You comb your hair. You put makeup on or you uh, put clothes on. Whatever you do to nurture yourself, think of your wives as an extension of your life. Adam realized this way back in Genesis chapter 2, the very inception of the marriage relationship. Remember what he said when he saw Eve? He said, wow. You say, I never read that before, Skip. Well, that's because it's not really there that way. What he said was, is this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. But I understand that the literal Hebrew has this emotive, expressive exaltation. Uh, It's not a dry, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But it it could be translated, wow, this is it. This is the one that came from me. She's a part of me. This is the one to complete my life. There's more emotion behind it than just a statement. We spend a lot of time in our culture caring for our bodies. Our bodies are very important to us, especially in this country. uh, We might say, especially in this state, we might even say, especially in this part of the state. We're known for that, aren't we? Vitamins, health, gyms, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, People spend a lot of time at the gym. Uh, There was a time in my life where I did that. it's funny to watch guys in gyms. There's mirrors there, and I know that's to, to help them see if they're doing it right. But usually I see guys stop at the mirror, put the weights down. And... and they're checking themselves out. They like what they see. Hey, they did a test, and it was in the state of California. They put a mirror up in a public place. I think it was outside of a bank is where I, what I read. And they discovered two things. Number one, people like to look at themselves. Number two, get this, men do it more than women do it. <laughs> Your guys are going, no way, way. <laughs> so love, nurture, cherish your wives like they're your own flesh. One of the reasons wives find it hard to submit to their husbands is simply that they don't feel secure by their husband's love. They're afraid to commit anymore because they feel like their love isn't safe. They don't feel this security that the Bible speaks about. You know, some men never tell their wives on a regular basis, I love you. I cherish you. I adore you. And I'll tell that to some guys in counseling, and they look at you like, well, 
I told her the day we got married. I told her I loved her. My word is my bond. I said it once, I still do. She wants to hear it a lot. Some guys have a hard time. It's like, I, 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 how are you, honey? How was your day? I, it's hard to get it out until it's like 10 o'clock at night. Honey, I love you. It's a whole different ballgame then. <laughs> Stable love. Verse 31. Stable love. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, he's quoting Genesis where the marriage was initiated by God. For this reason, a man will leave and a man will cleave. A man will one leave. That is, sever all other relationships to be attached to a new one, to form a new one. Leaving. The word cleave, if you look at in the original Hebrew language of the Old Testament, could be translated glued. Glued together. Glued inseparably together. Some people even think it means to be welded because uh, the idea is uh, forming a bond where two become one flesh. That's how it further describes it. Therefore, the two, man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that's what happens when you glue things together. If you were to go home, take a piece of paper, get another piece of paper, put glue on both sides, put them together, press them together, leave it, let it dry. Essentially, you have one unit. You say, no, I don't. I have still two pieces of paper. They're just glued together. Okay. I dare you to try to separate those two pieces of paper. All right. Now, once you've done it, I'll ask you this. Were you able to pull those two apart without damage? Do they resemble the original? Oh, no. You'll take it apart, but it will be severely damaged and very different. So the two shall become one flesh, leaving, cleaving, or gluing together, so that the love is a stable love. The absence of stability in a marriage is the reason many marriages fail. For some men, courtship is like hunting. He cites his game. He goes, she's the one. And he'll do everything he can to trap the prey and say all the right things and open all the doors and send flowers. And then she says, I do. And it's like, ha, I won. I've conquered. I've hunted. And the great hunter has won. And then it's over. Flowers aren't there. The open doors aren't there. The same words aren't there. Remember that statement, getting married is easy. I think we shared it last week in a different context, but let's bring it back. Getting married is easy. Staying married more difficult. Staying happily married for a lifetime would be considered among the fine arts. Be an artist. Be Picasso when it comes to your marriage. Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects or honors or reverences, is another translation, her husband. Now consider that. 
consider verse 32 where he says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, as I read it, a marriage relationship is intended by God to become a microcosm, a visible microcosm of the relationship Christ and the church have. So that if you want to see what a healthy church ought to be like, you look at a good Christian marriage. Husband loving his wife like Christ loved the church. A wife submitting to her husband as unto the Lord. And that beautiful relationship becomes, get this, a living tract. Better than passing out a piece of paper or putting it into a sandwich. A living tract where people could look at the marriage and go, Oh, that's the way God loves his people. Wow, I want that. I speak concerning Christ and the church. Let each of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If I'm reading that right, and I want to make a little application and stretch it here, a good marriage is a good witness. Bad marriage is a bad witness. I mean, think about it. If two Christians in the same house, in the same bedroom, can't resolve conflicts and love and forgive and humble themselves, how are they going to be able to share that love and forgiveness of Christ with other people? Christ will change your life. Oh, really? Did he change yours? Well, sort of. Okay. Now look at uh, verse 1 of the next chapter. We're moving to the third illustration. Remember the principle? Submitting to one another, wives to husbands, husbands to wives by sacrificing your life. Now the parents and children. Children, this is how you submit. Obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. When you think of the word children, how old do you think Paul's referring to? You think, you think little kids when you think of the term children. That's in English, at least. The Greek word he used was techna, which just is a generic term for offspring. So let me translate it the way I think it would best sound. Offspring, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. So it's to sons and daughters who are living under the same roof, which these days could be up to 30 or 40 years of age, I've seen. Um, but all, all children, uh, even if they leave the home, there's an honor and respect that never ends. You know, I thought when I turned 18, I left the home when I was 17, and uh, I graduated from high school, went up to San Jose. I'd left the house. But when I turned 18, I just thought, you know, that part of my life is over. I'm on my own now. They raised me, but I owe them nothing until I got saved. And the Lord showed me, if they're going to see love from anybody, if they're going to get a witness from anybody, they better see it from you because you're my child now and you're still their child. And I'll tell you, the best example of this is our Lord Jesus Christ. On one occasion, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. These are the guys who spent time understanding the text. They wanted to know what the Bible had to say about all of life. And they mulled it over and they passed rules and regulations and they discussed it and stroked their beards and wrote more and stroked their beards some more and discussed it more. And they had so ruined the commandment of honoring your father and your mother that Jesus nailed them on it. 
It's uh, found in Mark chapter 7. Here's the basic conversation. Uh, Pharisees engaged Jesus, and Jesus said, uh, How come you Pharisees dishonor the commandment of God by your traditions? And can't you just picture him going, Now, what do you think he's meaning by that? And he says, For the commandment says, Honor your father and your mother. But you say... Whatever you might have received as a benefit from us, mom and dad, it's Corban. Therefore, you skirt obeying the commandment of God by your tradition. Now, this is what Jesus was referring to. You could effectively take anything you owned and say, this is dedicated to the Lord. It's Corban. Oh, here's a couch. I'm going to make that. I'm going to dedicate that couch to to God. There's a car. I'm going to dedicate that car to God. Um, everything I own, all my bank account, it's Corban, it's all God. So that when your mom and dad come around, they say, son, we could really use a little of your help. You know, we raised you and we nurtured you. We gave you everything. We need some financial help. I understand you have four couches in your house. I just need one. Oh, mom and dad, I wish I could, but I can't because I've dedicated it to God. It's Corban. So they were able to circumvent a direct commandment by a weird ruling that became their tradition. But the ultimate example of our Lord Jesus Christ isn't what he said to the Pharisee, but by what he did. Here's Jesus, 33 plus years of age on a cross in excruciating pain, not thinking of himself. But he looks down from the cross and sees his mother next to one of his apostles, John. And he says, John, look, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. It was a way of saying, John, you're going to be taking care of my mother from now on. I'm going to honor her even on my death by making sure that she's taken care of. Beautiful example of honoring mother at the time of death. Look at verse 1 again and verse 2 together. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, obey is an action. But it's tied to something else. Honor your father and your mother. He's quoting the commandment, which is the first commandment with a promise. Obey refers to an action. Honor refers to an attitude. An attitude. There's a big difference in obeying technically and obeying with an honor attitude. A loving attitude. A joyous attitude. Like the little boy. And dad said, sit down. He said, no. Sit down. Hmm. Sit down. The boy stood there till dad walked toward Junior, took off his belt, as if to say, you're going to sit down. And the little boy sat down. And then the dad started walking away, and the little boy muttered, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. He's obeying, but not honoring. Here it says, obey your parents. It's right. Honor your father and your mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. Honoring implies respect. Respect when you address them. Respect when you talk about them. I remember in high school, uh, my buddies used to talk about their parents, and they'd say, my old man. My dad is my old man. My mom is my old lady. Do any of you remember that? I probably still don't do that. That's so ancient. And now I'm dating myself even by saying that, right? That's so 60s, well, 70s when I was in high school. 
my old man, my old lady. And they'd say it. And as much as I didn't get along with my father, I couldn't bring myself to calling my dad my old man. I just couldn't do it. Or when my brother had a tift with, with my dad and he called him by his first name. Well, you know, Lou said, I said, excuse me, Rick, he's dad. Well, I don't call him that any longer. I said, well, you ought to. But he had lost that respect. Now, we're out here in California, and respect isn't quite the same. I don't know if you've ever visited the South much, but they have cornered the market on respect. And I remember the first time uh, I hung around with uh, Franklin Graham and, and the circle that he's with in the South, and every time he addresses a woman, it's, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, not to a woman, to a man, no, sir. And I went, whoa. And when a woman go, comes in the room, men stand up. And to his mother, still to this day, yes, ma'am. To his father, yes, sir. Didn't say no, sir, anymore to his father. It's always yes, sir. <laughs> now, that's so different. We're out here in the West in California, and it's like, what's up, dude? <laughs> you know, it's so different, isn't it? So honoring implies respect. That attitude of respect. I grew up and had a crummy attitude, I'll confess that, with my father. Because my father would do something and then give me a chore to do, and then he'd give me a speech, and I could, I could tell him the speech. I had it memorized. A job worth doing is worth doing well. And son, when I was your... He had, and, that, and I started, you know, the, my attitude cast a shadow over our home. Um, honoring also implies appreciation. You know when I really started appreciating my parents? When I had a child. And I remember thinking, I'm now responsible. It's estimated that to raise a child from infancy to age 18 today, all total, all extraneous expenses cost around $250,000. So just based on that, there ought to be an appreciation and a respect. And you think it's more than money. It's uh, time. It's the nausea that mom has in carrying the child in pregnancy. It's the concern. It's the prayers. And one of the quickest way to crush a parent's heart is to not honor and to not appreciate, right? We just want our kids to say, thank you. I love you. I appreciate it. And I remember the day Nathan was born in Albuquerque, and I called my parents in Southern California. I said, thank you. And they said, are you all right? I'm really okay. Thank you. For what? For all the years you put into raising me. And so they realize, oh, you, you had your son. What's his name? <laughs> and notice what it says here. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with you. Here's the promise, in other words, that you may live long on the earth. Now, this is the reason why it's right. Obey your parents and the Lord. It is right. The reason it's right is because it made God's top ten list. God's top ten list of things to do and not do. Honor your father and your mother. Exodus chapter 20. And it says, the promise is you'll live long if you do. Now, you've got to smile a little bit at this because do you remember in the Old Testament what was the punishment for not obeying your parents? Yeah, it wasn't a guest appearance on The Simpsons or on... Jerry Springer show, it was death by stoning. So you, you think of that, 
It's the first commandment with the promise that it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth. Right? In an Old Testament context, you go, I get it. But even today, I think there's application. It still is applied today. You see, an obedient child will listen to his parents' warnings. We all have heard those warnings. Look both ways before you cross the street. Be careful when you go out and play. You'll have less accidents, less physical trauma if you listen to mom and dad's warnings. You won't play with sharp objects because they're going to warn you against that. I remember as a child, I was 12 years old, and I stole a motorcycle out of the garage. It was a Honda 50, a small motorcycle, but still, that can kill a kid. And uh, I was having a blast disobeying my parents until I ran out of gas and I crashed it on the side of the road. And it was a lesson for me. If I would have obeyed, I would have saved myself. Or the time I was thrown through the front window by my brother. And the very next week after they replaced the window, I threw my brother through the same window. You know, you do that enough times, you can, your life expectancy can go down. <laughs> also, an obedient child will avoid bad habits and bad friends. All the warnings of parents, once again, don't take drugs, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke. Watch those friends. I remember a friend that I had named Richard. I can speak about him because he's not alive right now. And my mom said... Don't hang around with him. He's bad news. How do you know? What do you know? She knew. He was eventually arrested with 19 felonies behind his name, and he was murdered by somebody for a drug deal gone bad. She knew. So that promise comes about and has a lot of meaning for me, that it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth. Proverbs 4, Solomon says, Listen, my son, and accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. There are consequences. I heard about a, a, a mom speaking to her little five-year-old daughter, saying, you must obey or you're going to have to live with the consequences. And she says, no, mommy, I don't want to go live with the consequences. I want to stay here and live with you forever. <laughs> you know... The only thing parents can take to heaven is their children. Can't take anything else. Oh, but you, wait till you see the car I just got. That's cool. Can't take it to heaven. Oh, the boat that I... You can only take your children to heaven. And the greatest fear Christian parents have is that their children won't be there. It's the greatest fear. Verse 4, and you fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that this is directed to fathers and not mothers? Or not even fathers and mothers, but it says fathers. Now, does that mean that moms don't have a role in raising kids? Are you kidding? You couldn't keep a mom away from the child-raising process. I was in a hospital doing a call one night. And uh, I was visiting uh, somebody in the hospital. And in the emergency room, there was a father and a mother, a young couple holding a hurt baby. They were both concerned, but that mom owned the moment. You know, you could just tell, don't mess with mom. And the, the, the way she was addressing nurses, doctors, she was bent on care being given to that child. 
There's an old Jewish proverb that said, it's not true, but it's cute in its saying, that God couldn't be everywhere, so he created mothers. In other words, mom's there, she's always there, you can count on her, you can trust that. So then, why does Paul address fathers in verse 4, chapter 6? A couple of reasons, perhaps. Number one, this could be an area of neglect. And it could have been, especially 2,000 years ago, in a Greco-Roman culture especially, the way they thought about children, an area of neglect. That of all of, all of man's responsibilities, that would be sort of like the last thing on his list. You know, he might have the attitude of, hey, I bring home the money. I take out the garbage. It's your responsibility to raise the kids. Even Socrates wrote these words to the men of Athens. Why do you turn and scrape every stone to gather wealth and take so little care of the children to whom one day you must relinquish all? So it could be that Paul is saying, dads, don't think that you can pass this off, this responsibility off to somebody else. Don't think you can say it's your responsibility, not mine. There's a second reason, perhaps, because men tend to be harsh. Now, now look at the text. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Better translation, don't exasperate them. Don't frustrate them. Uh, our voices are deeper, louder. We have more strength, more physical strength. And uh, the way we say things and have body language and are demonstrative is very different in the demeanor than a woman's. There's a third reason, and I believe this is probably the best reason he addresses fathers here and not mothers and fathers or mothers. He's addressing the head of the home. Remember the order. God, the father, Christ, husband, wife. He has that order. And in, with that in mind, he's addressing the head of the home, saying, guys, no matter how you divide up the roles, the responsibility of raising a child is still squarely upon the shoulders of a dad. Now, who reads most books on family and Christian parenting? Moms. 80%. 80% of the books sold on family and marriage are bought by women. Uh, who uh, typically, traditionally, gets more involved uh, in church activities and listens to Christian programming women. So it's important for men to hear these words. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but you fathers bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Bring them up means to nourish them to maturity. That's the goal, to bring them up, not to put them down, not to keep them home. Listen, you, you want to nurture them up and get them out of the house and get them responsible before God, living a productive life. When my son was born, and I held him, he was seven pounds and I don't know how many ounces. He was eight pounds, one ounce. See, I remember it so well, like it was yesterday. <laughs> eight pounds, one ounce, and long and skinny. But I'll tell you, for a guy that's six foot five to hold eight pounds, one ounce in his hands, I remember holding him. I cut the cord and I held him and I thought, He's so light. He's so light. He's, he's so fragile. And though I thought he's so light, the responsibility was so heavy. 
And it started coming on me as I held that light little baby in my hands. And I realized that we have a short time. He's 18. Those 18 years have gone about that fast. And I knew I had a short time to invest in his life. I agree with whoever said a parent is a partner with God in discipling children. A partner with God in discipling children. Now, let's finish up. Verse 5. Bond servants. We could translate that for our modern context. Employees. Bond servants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Boy, that's a whole different tone than modern day um, employees' rights, etc., etc. Not with eye service, not as men pleasers, verse 6, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The Bible exonerates work. I just want to get that out of the way. I've heard people say, you know, work is part of the curse. You're wrong. It's the sweat that came on man's brow that was part of the curse. You know, the first thing God did when he made man is give him a job. You shall tend this garden. That was before the fall, not after. He had a job to do work. It meant to bring uh, satisfaction and fulfillment to the guy. But it was the sweat of the brow. So uh, work is, is honorable. Um, the workplace is the stage for the Christian life. Now listen carefully. For so many people that wouldn't, in their words, darken the door of a church. They'd never go to church, but they would watch Christians. And they may come to church based upon what they see at the workplace. So you're, you're a Christian, you come to work, and um, unbelievers are wondering, hmm, how do Christians come to work on Mondays? What attitudes do Christians have during uh, tough times at work, under pressure? What are they like? And they will often make their evaluations based upon that. Heard about an employee that died and he went to heaven and stood before Peter. Peter's up there at the gate with his clipboard, as in all the jokes. And he said, "Uh, Peter, I I think there must be some mistake. I shouldn't die yet. I'm only 35 years of age. And Peter said, 35? Now, uh, according to the hourly work reports you've been turning in, you're about 97. I got a job in Westminster Community Hospital years ago when there was a Westminster Community Hospital. There isn't even one any longer. I was applying for a job along with lots of other workers. I wanted this job bad. I had just gotten back from living in Israel. I came back to the States. I needed it. I applied for it, and the guy said, well, thank you very much for coming in, and we'll let you know. Now, I know what that meant. We'll see you later. You're not going to work here. So I said, listen, I'd really like this job. Well, thank you. Well, well, like I said, we'll give you a call. And I turned around to him and I said, if you hire me, I'll be the best worker you have in this unit. And he paused. And he gave me that little smile that he was became, in my view, famous for. He said, you got a job. 
And I knew what that meant. It meant like, oh, really? Now I'm going to watch you because you just said something to me. You made a promise to me that said you'd be the best worker here. And so I gave it my best. I tried to do it. I tried to be responsible. And I worked with another Christian who had a great heart for the Lord problem. He was lazy as a worker. But he had a heart for the Lord. He wanted to witness to everybody. And so he would be, he was one of my orderlies and he would get patients from the unit and bring them down to the department. And he'd often pause on the way and stop in the hallway and tell them the gospel. And he'd be late for all the appointments. Well, the bosses were upset. Where's Craig? He's always late. We can't rely on him. And I said, Craig, you know, the boss is wondering about you, and he doesn't like the fact that you're late. He goes, oh, but you don't understand. Well, you should understand. You're a brother in Christ. I'm witnessing to him. I said, Craig, we got to talk. And we did talk. I said, Craig, if you're going to witness to him, witness to him before hours, after hours, on lunch break, or on your time, not on the company's time. You are a bad witness. He goes, you're judging me. I said, no, I'm not. Unbelievers are judging you, and you're giving the Gentiles a good reason to blaspheme, like what Nathan told David. Be a good worker. Do it with, not eye service, do it unto the Lord. Be the best worker in this department. Because that's the stage at which a lot of people will evaluate if Christianity is even worth its weight. Okay, I want to close by looking at something. There's a theme. Did you notice through this entire statement of submitting to one another and the four examples? The overarching banner is that our human relationships, how we deal with other people, we keep in mind that we're doing it before the Lord. I treat you, but I realize as I'm treating you this way, God is watching and is approving or disapproving on my attitude and actions toward you. I want, I want, I want you to see that. In um, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another in the fear of God. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, etc., you raise them up, don't provoke them. In the training and the admonition of the Lord. Verse 5 of chapter 6, bond servants, be obedient to your masters. And notice, follow it along as to Christ. So do you see God, the Lord, is always involved in everything we do. You can't separate them. Keep this in your mind. Think of an axis. One is vertical. One is horizontal. They're fixed. So that the relationship you and I have with God should be seen on the human level. If our relationship with people is off kilter, I submit to you it's because our relationship with God, that vertical axis, is off. When that's on, this will be on. If I love Christ supremely, I'll treat you and it'll reflect that. Relationships can be quite messy. It's messy business. And because it's messy business and there are a lot of parts in relationships, it's sort of like an engine. You need the lubrication. You need oil. If you have a couple, a man and a woman, you have two relationships. The relationship he has with her, the relationship she as a wife has with the husband. It's two relationships. 
Add one child to that, you have six relationships. So think about it. The relationship the husband has with a wife, the relationship the father has with a child. That's two. Then there's a relationship the woman has with her husband and the woman has with her child as a mom. That's four. Then you have the relationship that the child has with the dad and the relationship the child has with the mom. That's six relationships. You add another child to the mix, you have 12 relationships. The more you have, the chances are the messier it gets. With all of those moving parts, you need the right lubrication, and the right lubrication is where we began, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So are your relationships sounding smooth, like or depends on what kind of oil is in the engine. Nine-year-old Craig, and I close with this, was asked this question, as were other classmates. He was asked, what would you do on your first date that's turning sour? Now imagine a nine-year-old confronted with this decision. My first date, it's not going well. What would I do? He answers, I'd run home and play dead. The next day, I'd call all the newspapers and make sure they wrote about me in all the dead columns. (laughs) There's some adults that act just like that. They run away from the relationship. They run away from the marriage. They run away from the friendship. They run away from the church instead of the oil of submission, of mutual submission to one another. That's how many react. They run and play dead. Can't do that body of Christ, the church. We have husbands, we have wives here tonight, we have parents, we have, well, we're all children of someone. So we have a choice to make. Are we going to aim at smooth operation or rocky, unsmooth operation? The oil has to be there. Heavenly Father, you love us. To the extent that John said, the reason we love is because you first loved us. You're the great initiator. We are to be the great imitators. As Paul said, imitate. Be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Lord, it is my prayer that you'd fill us with your spirit and that we wouldn't gauge the filling of the Holy Spirit by how loud we shout or what heavenly language we have as much as by what love we demonstrate and must be demonstrated in the closest of all relationships in our families, in our homes, parents, children. Many ways to look at this. Many ways to apply it. I pray that that overarching principle of living in the fear of the Lord and submitting to one another would carry us and mark us. Thank you for the time together and the the weeks we've had in uncovering the truth of your word. Build us up in the most holy faith, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll sing one more song. And then after.